0: Hi, it's Jamie, and I'm Portia, and we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. Hey Pearls, we are back, and once again we are turning to our scripture, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And it reads like this, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, "'Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon.' But he did not answer her at all. And then his disciples came and urged him, saying, "'Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us.' He answered, "'I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.'" And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus ends the reading.
1: Wow. I tell you, Jamie, there's just something you can always discover within this text. It's never just one reading. There's never just one opportunity to just see one thing. There are multiple things that we can see from this text. And I'm actually interested in seeing what else we can find out from this text.
0: I am, too, and so we're continuing our Women of the New Testament series, which is really exciting, and we decided just to hear different perspectives on this same exact scripture that we engaged a couple of weeks ago with our friend, Jeremy Williams, and, Portia, who are we hearing from today? Today,
1: we are hearing from our good friend and colleague in ministry, Pastor David Telford.
0: Yeah, it's always really exciting to be able to talk to David. He is um, an excellent pastor at a church there in Brooklyn. So he and Portia actually live fairly close to each other. And so we're always grateful that Portia lives in a place where she can be um, a collaborator and a colleague in ministry with so many folks that we know and make new friends in ministry. So I think that's one of the blessings of being there in the you know, New Jersey, New York City area that all of you are able to collaborate and learn from each other and work together, and it's always a learning experience when we talk to David, like Jeremy. He's one of our Divinity School classmates, and uh, we've known him for a while. We're so grateful for him, and so I guess without further ado, we can go ahead and go on into our conversation with him. Hey, Pearl, you are in for a treat. Today we are here with our guest, the Reverend David F. Telfort. Reverend Telfort is the eighth installed pastor of the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is located in Brooklyn, New York. David has served as the pastor of LAPC since the summer of 2017. And he came to that position after having served as the pastoral resident at Plymouth United Church of Christ, which is in Des Moines, Iowa, and he had been there for two years. The Brooklyn, New York native received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Occidental College, which is here in Los Angeles, where I live, in urban environmental policy. While at Occidental, he sensed a call from God to serve the people in the church and the public sphere through community organizing. This call led him to pursue and earn his Master's of Divinity degree from Yale University's of Divinity, which many of you know is also the Divinity School alma mater of Portia and me as well. David's passion for ministry emanates out of a love for people and empowering them to live into God's vision of abundant life for themselves. He brings into every room he enters the voices of his Afro-Caribbean ancestors, and he leans on the Holy Spirit for the courage to do God's will. Thank you so much, David, for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to Just Two Pearls.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Great. So today we are going to continue our brief series on the women of the New Testament and Jesus' interaction with them. And our passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew. That is on the first of our synoptic Gospels that we find in the New Testament. And it's Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, in which Jesus has a quite compelling conversation with a Canaanite woman. So, David, just to start off, we know you went to the Yale Divinity School. We sat in classes with you. Um, Portia and I just think that you're just such a superb biblical scholar. It definitely, if you haven't heard David preach in the past and you are in the New York area definitely head on over to Brooklyn to hear him preach. He just knows how to, of course, preach and engage the people, but he's also just such a natural teacher and just has such a depth of knowledge when it comes to biblical studies. So, David, as you uh, read this passage from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, do you mind giving us just kind of a quick exegesis and for our listeners to Uh, might not know that term exegesis, that's a Greek term, and it basically just means to just kind of break down the text, talk about, you know, maybe some of the historical underpinnings of the text, but also just to dig into what the text itself says. So, uh, David, do you mind giving us just a quick exegesis um, of this passage that we've chosen to discuss today?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, again, I really appreciate the opportunity to to be here with you all. Um, You know, whenever – the folks and I over at LAPC get together for Bible study, um, I really invite us to do a few things, you know, um, really before we even dive into any text, and that is to locate ourselves um, liturgically, um, locate ourselves as readers, um, and then also kind of locate where we are in the biblical text itself. So, you know, as I kind of move into, like, a moment of just trying to lay out what's happening here uh, in the text, you know, I do think that it's important for me to, to name a couple of things about kind of where we are liturgically um, and at least where I'm coming from as a reader because I think that that is incredibly important um, when it comes to, you know, how we understand the text that we're talking about today. Um, I always try to locate us liturgically because I don't know about you, Jamie and Portia, but you know, I grew up in a um incredible, loving Afro Caribbean um, you know, community um and a church um that was everything that I needed it to be growing up. Um and there was not a huge emphasis on the liturgical calendar. Um, But I do think that, the, you know, one of the gifts of going to a more ecumenical divinity school is that it gave us an opportunity to to learn about the liturgical calendar and, like, liturgy. And, like, this idea of us being in the season after Pentecost and in ordinary time, I think, is really important because I think it's in those moments that God can speak to us in profound ways, right, that There are these seasons of the calendar where we have, like, these huge celebrations, um, whether it be Advent or Easter or Pentecost. But the idea that God can still be speaking to us in those ordinary times I think is really important. So I always try to remind folks where we are liturgically. And then I want to ground myself as a reader, right? You know, I want to own the fact that I am um, a heterosexual male approaching this text. I think that that's really important for me to name. Um, that I am an Afro-Caribbean black man approaching this text. And my experiences um, with all of those identities, I think, really informs how I'm looking at this, the questions that I have, uh, the things that I am seeing, the things that I miss. So um, I think that that's also really important. When any of us come to the biblical text, you know, if we fail to interrogate kind of what we're bringing um, you know, when we, when we come to the text, um, I think that we might miss, a, you know, a really special opportunity for the divine to kind of interact with us. So, you know, I try to, you know, invite the folks at LAPC or anywhere that I may be, um, you know, teaching to, to kind of go through that process. So once we locate ourselves liturgically and as readers, then we try to also locate where we are in the text, um, And it's really fascinating because um, if you, you know, uh, Dr. Valerie Bridgman always talked about this, if you don't pay attention to what's happening before and after, you might kind of miss, like, what's actually happening in the text as well. So um, before this, as Jesus is doing throughout the synoptics, he's teaching, he's teaching a you know a crowd that's before him often he has these kind of like side lessons with his disciples um and he's talking about the ways in which um some people take holiness for granted right they want to talk about the type of things that defile you here we are um at the actual text itself and you know, Matthew tells us, or the writer tells us that you know Jesus and uh, the disciples uh, go to this uh, place uh, called Tyre and Sidon, and this woman, this Canaanite woman from the region of Canaan, uh, in in, in Mark she's called the Syrophoenician woman, uh, but they're telling really um, in many ways the uh, same story here. Uh, she comes up to Jesus and, and says, "Lord, Son of David, like this royal title, um, my daughter's tormented by a demon." Um, and, you know, the, the New Revised Standard Version translation says that Jesus doesn't answer her, um, and Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible says that Jesus flat out ignores her, right? And she goes on and she doesn't stop. She keeps on pressing and, um, you know, keeps on, you know, coming to Jesus and said, no, you know, um, my daughter has a demon. I need you to, um, to address this. Uh, to come see about her, and I'm not leaving um, unless unless you do so. Um, and then, you know, in in a Turner phrase that kind of um, has has tripped up a lot of interpreters, but also uh, Christians and preachers alike. Um, you know, Jesus. You know, Jesus. After the you know disciples are like, she's not going away. You got to say something. You got to do something. Jesus says, um, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Um, and this woman, again, um, in in the form that most um, that most of our mothers uh, would take, um, does not take that uh, as the final answer. Um, and she says, Lord, help me. Um, she kneels even before him at this point. Um, and then Jesus says, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dog. And, you know, if if that if that phrase doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks um i'm not i'm not sure what will um but then there's a turn in verse 27 where she responds and says yes lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table then jesus goes on to say woman great is your faith let it be done for you as you wish um and the you know that last phrase of the verses and her daughter was healed instantly Um, And, you know, what I would often try to do is if I was, you know, teaching a Bible study, if I was, you know, talking to, um, you know, a group of people who have gathered, um, I would first try to find out, you know, like I would try to find out if there was anyone that was hearing this story for the first time and just try to get their gut reactions, right? Um, You know, sometimes uh, for those of us who have spent some time in divinity school or seminaries, um, chances are we've, We've we've read some of these texts. We've lived with it for a little bit. So I would want to just see um, what are some of the gut reactions that come out for people, right? You know, what 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 does it feel like, perhaps, to uh, to have been in a place like this? Mother, who has someone who she cares about, who she loves, who is sick, uh, and the fact that she's coming to Jesus means that she can't do something about this illness, right? Um, that she can't be um, what her child needs her to be in that moment and how heartbreaking it is, right? I, I think that that's part of the reason why we see this woman coming to Jesus time and time again and not really taking no for an answer, right? Um, and one of the gifts of pastoring is that I've been able to see um, parents um, who come to that place where they want with all their heart to be able to do for their children, um but they can't what you know um and i think that's such a real reality so to have her be in this place come to jesus and then the response be um it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs um i would um, as opposed to um you know off the bat trying to lead the Bible study in any particular direction, I would just like to see where people um land with that right? What does it do when you read that off of the um you know page um and especially coming from your own position, your own identities uh what does it feel like to um you know to to hear that so um I think for me um. After the conversation has gone on, uh, what I always try to do is try to give some um, some background knowledge that perhaps uh, some people may not know. Um, I think that it's really important to, to understand uh, that term. Uh, you know, some people will try to to clean it up, um, and you know, and and try to say that that word "dog" when you look at the Greek really means like little little house dog, or like you know a dog that was in the ho- you know um you know that was in the house as a pet. But we are talking about um, you know just just to keep it uh, a thousand a really derogatory term here. Right, And the fact that this woman has um, Canaanite origins, um, you know, we are talking about um, a group of people um, who um, are not seen as being um, of the house of Israel, um, and clearly there's been um, some socialization, um, you know, happening uh, for Jesus and the people around him that, Um, when he, when he, when he looks at her, when he interacts with her, there are clearly some people who are in and some people who are out. Um, and I think that, um, for, for Jesus to kind of wear his socialization like that on his sleeves, I think is really, really important. And, uh, it's, it's a point where that it's important for us to raise this question. Um, what does it mean? Um, for us to have these instances in Scripture? What does it mean for the storytellers who are telling us this story of Jesus? Uh, What does it mean theologically, right, Um, if we believe that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, to have this moment um, where it feels like Jesus falls short, Um, falls short in this interaction? fall short um, with the way in in many ways that he dehumanizes this woman, um, even if the resolution of the text um, is that um, her faith and her persistence um, seems to win him over, right? Uh, Because she goes from being called a dog in verse 26 um, to verse 28 um, after she kind of hits him back, um, you know, as as strong women do um, every day. Um, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, right? She's, she's sharp. Um, she, she stands flat-footed, and she's so dedicated to her daughter that she's not going to let, um, you know, a derogatory word or dehumanization deter her from getting what she needs for her daughter. And because of that faith, uh, Jesus goes from calling her a dog to calling her a woman, right? And um, I'll say this and I'll be done. I think that part of what troubles me about some of the teaching or the conversation around this text is that there is redemption that people see in the transition of Jesus from verse 26 to 28, right? The fact that she goes from being called a dog to being called a woman, people see redemption in that, right? So that's what many people may choose. to to preach or to teach, right? There's redemption there. Um, But I was reading uh, very recently, I'm still working my way through it, um, but there is um, a new text out uh, by this activist um, and liberator um, and now, uh, you know, kind of global uh, speaker by the name of Charlene Carruthers. um, And she recently wrote a text called um, Unapologetic um, a Black, Um, queer feminist mandate for radical movements. it's a phenomenal text and I encourage people to go out and get it Uh, but she writes uh, in one of the chapters about um, I believe she was reading a quote or um, or 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 watching an interview with um, the great luminary and actress uh, Cicely Tyson and Cicely Tyson uh, was basically describing the social stratification in America and talking about um, and talking about it in terms of a ladder with rungs on it. And she talked about how at the very bottom of that ladder um, are where most black women are, where black women are. And um, I'm trying not to be like too like, technical here, but Cicely um, um, uh, Tyson talks about the strength of black women being in the resiliency to hold on to that last rung on the ladder. Um, and she talked about how uh, despite all that has happened for black women, that there's strength in being, you know, able to hold on to that ladder. And I want to be careful here because I'm not a black woman. So, um, you know, there's there's part of me that needs to be very careful as I um, say this. But I think that Charlene Carruthers, um, where she's coming from as a millennial and as a young activist, what she wanted us, um, with all due respect to, to a Cicely Tyson is how do we interrogate, um, yes, maybe finding, finding strength and redemption in, 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 um, in a black woman being able to hold on to that last rung, but questioning that ladder in the first place and questioning why is it that we have this social stratification in the first place? You know, why is it that this even has to exist? So when I think about this text, Yes, we can find redemption in the fact that you that 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 this Canaanite woman was so persistent that Jesus seems to have this moment where he learns from her and I know that some people will have problems with that even paradigm that Jesus um, you know uh, God herself come in the form of a person can 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 learn um, but even though I do think that, yes, Jesus learned something from her, I think that really perhaps where some of the envelope can be pushed is questioning what does it mean for a story that starts all the way in Genesis, um, that starts um, with uh, a text that I have to preach about this weekend where Jesus, uh, where, where uh, God gives this promise um, to, to Abraham about this land being promised to his descendants where that story that starts all the way back in Genesis results in the dehumanizing of people um, and calling them out um, of their rightful divine name. Um, And I think that that's really where some of the wrestling has to happen, right? What are some of the ways in which we are doing that to each other even today? Um, And how do we um, in so many ways celebrate people who are able to persist, people who are able to fight through all of that instead of interrogating the systems that are causing them to have to fight in the first place.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, David. Oh, my goodness. That is such a wonderful um, reading and exegesis of this text. And, you know, David, you being a pastor by profession, um, it's important that we hear your engagement in particular with this text as you have included a very practical perspective and um i like you um working in a pastoral setting working in a, a local church context in the parish it's always it, it always always kind of like messes with my mind a little bit when i see jesus uh, out of character uh, out of the norm of what is commonly preached right about jesus and it always kind of like messes with me right but As a scholar and as a pastor, I have to think about how am I responsible for the lives of people, right? And so if I were a gospel writer, um, I don't know if I would necessarily include this. Right? Not necessarily because it does not highlight the narrative of Jesus that we're comfortable with. But at the same time, and a, a post Yale portion is like I absolutely need to include this portion of Jesus because yes Jesus is divine. Yes Jesus depending on, you know, your uh your theology of the Trinity I believe, you know, that Jesus is, you know, the, is God, you know, wrapped in human flesh, the spirit of God wrapped in human flesh, right? And so that right there will mess us up when we think about Jesus having a very human moment and calling this woman a dog. And so, David, I want to ask you um and there's some other things I want to ask you, but the first thing I want to ask you in particular, uh, in today's context, how do you wrestle with and people might get mad at me for saying this, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it anyway, how do you wrestle with Jesus interacting with this woman in particular, um, who is who is who can be read as raced, right? Um, and as a minority, how do you wrestle with him calling her a dog and then turning around um and hearing someone like the President forty five to Omarosa a dog and the uproar that people had in that interaction of how dare he call her that not realizing that same Jesus that we serve and we worship and we love, also called the woman out of her name and dismissed her in her moment of advocating for her own child. How do we come to terms with that? How do we wrestle with that as believers? How do we wrestle with that as preachers, as pastors, as practitioners? How do we wrestle with this perfect Jesus that we have always holding so near and dear to our hearts? How do we understand that, he had a moment. I mean, Jesus has several moments, but we don't always talk about them. But this is definitely one of his um, low glows, right? He's not so glowing so high in this. And you mentioned the redemption. But before we even get to the redemption, we can talk about the fault, right? So how do you personally reconcile and pastorally reconcile with this text in that? So um, I'm interested to hear your perspective.
2: Yeah, you are definitely walking heavy. You're walking heavy, and I um, and I appreciate that. I think that you know there, there is um, a lot, a lot, a lot to be said here. But where, where I'll start um, is um, in that same text, and, and 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 I apologize if at several points in this conversation I reference um, Unapologetic by um, Charlene Carruthers because you know you know that's just what I'm reading these days. But she talks about um, you know uh, in the text. Uh, a conversation that she was having with a mentor of hers, and the mentor says something to the effect, um, and I don't have it in front of me so I can't quote it perfectly, but something to the effect that colonized minds colonize others. Colonized minds colonize others. And this is the reason why I think that when we read Jesus and the disciples outside of the context of, Um, of um, the um, colonization and the military presence of the Roman Empire, we miss um, a very important um, layer to everything that, you know, is happening um, in the text, right? Because, you know, I tell this to people all the time in the church, right, that there are systems that we um, wrestle with, that we live with, Um, that we struggle against, and there's no way that we can live in that atmosphere and not have those systems enter into us and have ways in which we begin to operate and perpetuate them. So when I think about Um, the writing of the Hebrew Bible all the way to the writing of this text to the very lived reality um, that Jesus grew up in, right? Um, You know, uh, Jesus being um, a a person that was raised in a household that had a community around him, that had conversations with friends, that went to the synagogue, that walked through the marketplace, Um, and having all of that uh, being under the watchful eye of the state um, and having some of your own people on the payroll um, who levied uh, unfair taxes against you. You had people thrown in jails on trumped-up charges. You had an emperor that was called the Lord. When you have all of that and you take that into context, um, you know, I think that it's very real uh, and very human to understand um, that there are the systems that Jesus was living in perhaps. Um, um, in a uh, many ways um, as with everyone around him began to um enter the way that he was taught and the conversations that he was a part of. I think that when we think of the great liberators of history, uh, and of course, you know, Jesus being the divine is on a whole different level, but I think that when we think of like the great liberators, um, you know, in history, uh, you know, we can't we can't pretend um, as if um, they were not Um, touched by the very systems that they were a part of, right? In fact, some of the systems that they were fighting against were some of the very systems, no doubt, that probably influenced some of their thoughts and some of their thinking, right? That's why you have evolution of thought and why you have growth of many of these individuals over time um, because we're people, right? Um, And for me as a pastor, um, I would hope that people um, wouldn't this moment of Jesus stumbling um, over the patriarchy, over the racism that perhaps he was brought up in and and, like, um, and, and and it was very much a part of the atmosphere that he was in, that that would somehow disqualify Jesus, um, you know, being very much the divine and human flesh uh, that came and lived a radical life that still freed a lot of people, right? Right. Um, I think that that's important, um, and you know, to, to to go back to your point about telling the whole story. Um, my goodness, I think that we would free so many more people if we told the whole story, right that if we didn't try to sanitize this moment in jesus's life, you know, why not tell the whole story right? Because there are some people who can identify with a Jesus who does have this commitment to liberation, right? Jesus goes on after this text to 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 heal a lot of people to free a lot of people, and yet jesus um himself is not unscathed by the systems around him so that's how i would um you know that's how uh i would i would reconcile it and you know i think that you were spot on by being very real right that 45 um who is you know currently uh, occupying um the uh the white house you know for for us to have a conversation um about some of the ways in uh in which patriarchy um and and um and racism have ways of dehumanizing people. And whether it is um, a president who is sitting in a seat um, where he is so narcissistic that he um, has a person who he disagrees with, um, that, you know, based on her gender and her race, he can uh, degrade her by calling her a dog, or a liberating, radical, loving um, savior who grows up in a system where he's taught that because of the historical roots of an entire people that somehow the needs of Israel come before them. Um, I think that it's something that we need to wrestle with. And my hope, my hope is that when we talk about it, when we teach it, when we preach it, um, that people don't think that all of a sudden their entire theological framework has to fall apart because uh, Jesus is human. You know, and it's not to let him off the hook. In fact, I think we need to keep Jesus on the hook there and wrestle and interrogate with those systems because I think that there's no way um, that we get truly free if we don't do that.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And, of course, we have to be committed to the work of freedom. And, David, as you've been talking um, with us today, I noticed that you are conscious of your positionality as you approach this text. I suppose my question is, uh, first of all, why is it so important to you to continue to clarify your positionality in engaging this text? What does our positionality have to do with the way that we read and understand scripture and with our walk with Christ in general? Um, Especially with this particular passage, why is positionality so important? Why is it important that, Um, We continue to recognize our space and place. Why is it important for me to recognize that I am a Black woman in America, um, but furthermore, although I am a Black woman, I also have this middle-class privilege. I have the opportunities that education has afforded me. Why is it important that when we approach a scripture, especially a scripture like that, that we keep in mind um, who we are, what we're bringing to the text, um, and that we continue to uplift the voices of those who might be marginalized, even under the sound of our voices.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think that the reason why positionality is so important, and um, being able to interrogate and recognize our identities and what identities we hold, but also which identities we don't, um, is because, you know, I think that if we if we paused a little bit, we would learn when to speak, and we would also learn when to sit back and listen. Um, You know, and I'll get to this text in a moment, but, you know, um, on the date that this is being recorded, uh, September 10th, you know, 2018, over the weekend, um, the greatest living athlete uh, on, um, you know, on this planet, you know, Serena Williams, um, had, had a moment where um, you know, she was being accused of doing something um, that, you know, she says she wasn't doing, and in a moment of uh, frustration and um, emotion, um, she was she was docked um, an entire game that ended up costing her the U.S. Open. And she had this moment where um, in a very real uh, moment, like she goes up to Uh, you know, the person who was, uh, you know, uh, docking her the and docking her the game and saying, listen, you know, if I was a man, this would not, um, you know, even be an issue. Um, If I was, you know, Sean McEnroe, this would not even be an issue. In fact, I I would be called passionate, you know. um, I know everyone would would talk about the fire I have for the game. And um, the immediate response of some people, um, watch this was not to um, think about things from Serena's perspective, but um, I'll never forget like somebody like almost instantly on Twitter put up video footage of the coach and put up their interpretation of what was going down and completely ignored what Serena was talking about. Um, and that person did not hold the identity um, of a black woman. Um, and I think that what I have tried to do in so many moments afterwards is to sit back and see the outpour of testimonials of people who know what it's like to be where Serena was um, when she was challenging and when she was responding um, to the allegation right there on the court. So I think that positionality is so important and identity is so important um, because we can rush um, we can rush to judgment. We can rush to pretend like we know what it's like uh, when we don't. Um, and, um, and I think that there is something um, sacred about our identities and the reason um, why God made us this way. So I think that um, it's so important because I think that we rush a little bit too much to try to explain things away or try to fix things or make them neat. When I think so much of the text is inviting us, to wrestle and be uncomfortable, right? So when I come to this text, the reason why I started out the way that I did is because if I was in a Bible study, I would fall back and let the women in the room hold court. I would fall back and let the mothers in the room hold court and let them speak about their experiences because I think it's in those moments that I've learned um, what it means for a mother or a woman, but especially a black woman, um, to, to come into a space coming for something that they need and be met with an insult. And because the need is so great, um, in many ways um, they've been forced to press through it anyway, take it on the chin and, quote, unquote, take it like a champ. Um, and then have to go forward um, and achieve anyway. Um, And too many times, like I said before, we celebrate the resilience without interrogating the system that hit them in the first place. And that's all, you know, that I really think, um, you know, I'm hoping that we do with this text, which is to – Celebrate the resilience and celebrate what Jesus learns, but also interrogate, my goodness, what is happening. And I think to your point, uh, Jamie, we can't do that if we don't listen to the voices of mothers and women, but especially black women who know exactly what it's like to experience this.
1: That's so great, David. Wow. That that right there is something. That was a tweetable moment in my estimation. And so given that, right? In this woman's story, right, we see her advocating, particular, particularly, right, she's advocating for her child, and Jesus is denying her what she needs. Like, you know, I'm gonna still keep calling the thing a thing, I'm calling the spade a spade, and in that. Right, You do this great work, David, just with the Poor People's Campaign and just grassroots organizations and just really out here organizing and you're really on the front line for social justice and social change. And so um, how do we see outside of just gender, because we know gender is a huge part in this text, but in addition to gender, I will also ask how does race and economics and class and even Empire, how does that play out in this text, and what and how does your work inform um, a solution to what is happening in this text
0: yeah
2: i really I really appreciate that um, that uh, question. you know, I think it's important for you to name what you named right because you know what we are seeing here um, is not just a moment um, where because because of her gender she's being addressed the way that um she, you know she is. You know, like I said, all of all of these systems, right, whether it is um um patriarchy, whether it's classism, um, and then also thinking about what it means to be living in this empire, uh, going back to that quote, colonize minds, uh colonize others. Um so I think that it's it's impossible to think in the ways um that you know, Jesus has has just been socialized in particular ways, right? And you know, there's a way to um, perhaps be so turned off by that idea that you won't even engage it. But I think that it's impossible to think a day in and day out Jesus has not seen the brutality that plays out um, on the on the state level um, in local politics um, with Roman soldiers. Um, to see all of that play out, to, to, to see it play out in the synagogue, right, um, what, you know, modern readers would say, you know, happening in the church, right, to see all of the classism and having all those issues play out in the church and not have some of those systems begin to seep into our way of thinking, um, you know, I think that um, it's uh, it's naïve. Um, at best, but it's also destructive, um, you know, at worst, not to acknowledge that some of that is happening, right? So the best that we can do, recognizing that that is the truth and that's happening, is to always interrogate ourselves in the work that we're doing, right? So if I invite us to interrogate ourselves as readers before we come to the text, in the same way, we have to check ourselves and interrogate ourselves as we do the work of the gospel out in the world, right? Um, I am fairly new at the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church, and I am – Just so proud to be the pastor there. I feel like I found a place where I really can be myself and that, you know, um, I can walk in the calling that God has placed on my life. Um, And one of the things that I think that we have to wrestle with um, in a context of a congregation um, that is multi-ethnic, Um, So we're a predominantly um, black church, but we definitely have uh, white parishioners as well, Um, and we are in a gentrified part of Brooklyn, um, meaning that as the demographics continue to change, of course, the demographic of the congregation will change as well, but we're multi-ethnic, and because of the history of the church and because of the particular ministry that I've been called to, we are also Um, what some would say on the liberal progressive side theologically um, and definitely on the liberal progressive side politically. So many people are walking into the doors um, and they know that they're, you know, like they know that they're going to get something that kind of pushes the envelope, um, you know, in worship every week. Um, But I think that one of the, the things that I have to be, you know, cognizant of personally, but also as a community, we need to always remember That just because, you know, we believe that we are doing the work of setting the captives free and bringing good news to the poor, um, we can't ever stop interrogating ourselves and asking ourselves what stereotypes do we hold? What assumptions are we holding? How many times do we walk into a community meeting and think we have the answer without hearing from the very people living around us and our neighbors, right, who are not living in townhomes, are not living in expensive apartments, but are living um, in housing projects, right? Um, And I think that so often... Um, one of the failures of liberalism, one of the failures of progressives uh, in our nation um, is not doing the same type of interrogation that we do um, of so-called people who are on the other side of the aisle, right? Um, so we're very quick, uh, you know, to, to go biblical, um, you know, point out the speck. Um, you know in someone else's eye without you know checking out the log in our own and you know um, like you said Portia you know there's a lot of good work happening in the community that I am fortunate to pastor Um, and I think our job is to never get so satisfied with that work um, but also always be interrogating that log right how did that log get there what does it look like, and on any given day that log represents something else, right? It may be gender one day, it may be race, it may be um class um it may be education, but I am convinced that you know we you know whenever we're whenever we're as high as we think we are, you know um and um I think it's really it's really important for us to always just ask those questions, you know what are we you know like what are we doing well, but also Let's ask ourselves, are we really going about, you know, this the right way? Are the right people in the room? Are we are we making decisions and speaking for communities where no one who lives in that community is in the room? And oftentimes um, I've been in too many spaces, um, you know, and I'll own that for myself. I've been in too many spaces where that has been the case, um, and uh, we've definitely got to do better.
1: Well, thank you, David. My, my, my. Pastor Telford, you are someone quite incredible within the community, and you are doing great work out in Brooklyn. You are well-informed, and you are just doing great things, David. We're just so happy that you were able to join us on today and just helping us with this text and working through it. Um, It is a rich text with a lot of things that we can work through and we can continue to dig up and continue to parse out and so we're just grateful that you're a part of this short series. And so, David, if you don't mind, can you tell the people, one, how to find you, and, two, how um, they can come to your church as well? So plug you and plug your church.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So you can find me um, on uh, all uh, you know, social media
1: platforms,
2: just my name, at David F. Telfort. Um, and you can find me on you know Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Would love to hear from you, uh, engage in conversation about this afterwards. And then you are always welcome to join us at the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church. You can find us real easy at lapcbrooklyn.org. Again, lapcbrooklyn.org. Uh, We are in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn, right near the Barclays Center. Uh, Come check us out. Worship is at 11 a.m., and we would love just to continue the conversation in person as well.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, David. We're really grateful to have you. Hopefully we will have you again, and we look forward to hearing more from you. So keep up the great work and pearls. Make sure you all check out David and check out that text by Charlene Carruthers because um, David definitely plugged a great book for us. And so as we are continuing to read, Read and just having some more study and some more um, personal reading time, check out that text. And so thank you so much, David, for sharing with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: I am just so proud of the work that you all are
2: doing. To know you all from Divinity School to now, um, it, it, it is a huge blessing. So um, I appreciate you, and I can't wait to keep listening to the podcast.
1: Pearls, I really hope you enjoyed that episode talking to David. David has so much wisdom. He has so much perspective as a pastor and as a scholarly pastor. He just has so much great wisdom. And so if you've never heard that story of the Canaanite woman told in the same way that we talked about with David, then I just wonder if you would just take the time and just go back and listen to the episode and take some time to go back and read and tell us what else you find out in the story. What other perspectives do you have? What other things do you see? But now you know what time it is, Pearl. It's time for that petty pearl. So y'all know, stuff is mad petty. And, you know, I can be petty about the church. I can be petty about Jesus. I can be petty about pretty much anything. But you want to know something I want to be petty about? I don't understand why we park in the driveway, but we drive on the parkway. Why do we do that? So I'm just I know it's all semantics I know it's all words but no but for real though like I just don't understand that like why don't you just park in the parkway and drive in the driveway like that doesn't make any sense and so I'm just like what white man thought of that and thought that that was okay to just say stuff like that like that doesn't make any sense and I don't know for sure if it's really a white man. I'm just assuming. So, you know, egg on my face if I'm wrong. But in any case, I just want to know who named that and why would you do that? Because that makes no sense to me. So that's just something that I'm just like, that that's petty. You know, we should drive in the driveway and we should park on the parkway. Like, duh. But anyway, that's all I have for y'all today. Thanks for listening.
0: Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Just2Pearls.
1: And you can email us at adventures at just2pearls.com.
0: And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.